Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, believe it or not, the primary elections are less than two months away. So we're continuing our candidate interviews. And this week, we interview Shari Ibarra, the state superintendent, in the middle of her second term in office. We talk about her seven years on the job, what she's accomplished, and what she would hope to accomplish if she's reelected this year. Here's our conversation. Well, Superintendent Ibarra, thank you for making time for us this week. Um, You've been in office now for a little bit over seven years. As you look to uh, another uh, election campaign, you hope to get reelected to a third term. What would be your top priority? Well, uh, you know, I would like to start with I'm the only educator in this race. Uh, And so I'm the only one that has been a uh, classroom teacher who's run a building, who has taught an entire class of students to read, um, and someone who has worked on the budget for the last seven years and gotten uh, this year specifically over $200 uh, million uh, in new money for education. Excited about that. Uh, but again, as someone who has uh, is the only candidate in this race that has been a teacher teaching an entire classroom full of kids to read literacy would be uh, one of my top priorities going into uh, this next term should I have the honor of being reelected as well as uh, teacher pay and teacher retention that's really important as well uh, so uh, those are uh, two of my top priorities uh, and then a third one would be Uh, Something that I think we've seen uh, spoken about nationally and one of the reasons I think uh, that schools uh, need to really think differently about is parental involvement. Uh, That's one of the things uh, during the COVID pandemic that came out loud and clear as parents want to know how they can better engage in their child's uh, educational career. Okay. So a lot to get uh, get to off of that first question, that first answer. Let me start with the literacy component. You know, we're seeing this bill work its way through the legislature Monday morning. It, it passed the House committee. There are still concerns, though, expressed within that committee about putting this money into literacy, putting this money potentially into all-day kindergarten, when we haven't seen a lot of results so far yet off of the investments in, in literacy. What should people be looking for, and what would you be looking for if you're reelected? I would say we have seen the investments off of literacy. We went from 31st uh, in the nation uh, to 17th in the nation for achievement. And besides the pandemic, we were seeing uh, some increases in our uh, reading literacy scores with our new Idaho reading indicator. So I would disagree that we are not seeing uh, those gains. But moving forward, we all know, educators know, uh, that early education for, there's research out there for every Um, dollar that you invest, there's an $18 return on your investment. So, uh, you know, we have to invest in early education. We we have spoken about being college and career ready throughout the state of Idaho. We are fifth in the nation for college and career ready. Uh, We are number one for offering college credits while still in high school. But the one thing that we haven't uh, explored and done is uh, the the kindergarten piece, the all-day kindergarten. And so, there were some concerns expressed about that. I am glad uh, that that uh, bill this morning passed the House. Uh, very excited about what we can do in the state of Idaho moving forward. Um, our Idaho reading scores are improving. Uh, and um, while we saw some slight uh, slide backs during COVID, we definitely held our own. Uh, another example would be probably about two weeks ago, I sat 
uh, in a meeting with some other of my board members, fellow board members, where we had a third party come in and talk to us about performance uh, during COVID. And what they saw was Idaho um, really not seeing the declines in learning that we thought we were going to see, although there were declines, uh, they were not um, as, uh, as severe as the rest of the nation. And that's because I wholeheartedly know that it's because one, we were open for the most part in person learning and two, uh, we have made strategic investments in reading. And we have that new Idaho reading indicator that gives teachers a lot more data about how they can help their students uh, when they take that test and it shows that maybe some of their students are not on grade level. And as a former third grade teacher, I always tell teachers I'm so jealous when I travel to the state and talk to them. I didn't have that opportunity uh, when I was back in the classroom. The Idaho reading indicator uh, was a little outdated and a student would take that test and then you, you pretty much just had to figure out uh, where you could intervene and, and hope that you could do your best to get a student up to grade level. But now the new Idaho reading indicator has uh, a lot more um, data, a lot more interventions, uh, and a lot more suggestions for teachers that work uh, with their students. And that's what we're beginning to see. Let me jump back to the rankings that you talked about, because I've heard you talk about these rankings before. The 17th in the nation ranking, you were talking about the Education Week rankings from the fall. But as I look at those overall rankings, it's it's kind of a mixed report card. I mean, it's it's 40. Yeah, it's 40th in the nation in terms of an overall ranking. It's 36th in the nation in terms of chance for success. It's 48th in terms of finance. It's not a completely rosy report card from Education Week. Well, many of those um, lower rankings that we see are related uh, to uh, where we rank for and uh, for funding uh, for pupil funding and I think that's one of the things as we move forward uh, should I get reelected that we really need to work on is a, is a new funding formula now we all know as educators uh, you know we worked hard before COVID uh, and the devil's in the details we didn't want to see any school uh, we didn't want to see winners and losers, but I think moving forward, that's where many of those low rankings are coming from is, is how schools are funded in the state of Idaho. And, and another piece of that, while the achievement piece is what I'm talking about, which is mainly English language arts and math, a lot of those other rankings that you're referring to that are low is one of the reasons I said we need to work on parental involvement is because uh, parental involvement is tied into that low ranking as well as uh, funding for education in the state of Idaho and uh, pre-K or early learning opportunities. Another reason why we needed to focus on offering all day kindergarten for the state of Idaho. And that fifth in the nation ranking on college and career readiness. I mean, that's that's from a U.S. News and World Report article from 2018. So it was before the pandemic. And even then, it seemed to be grading Idaho students on how many of them took the SAT and how many of them scored college and career ready. I mean, it's it's not as clear cut as maybe saying we're fifth in the nation for college and career readiness. Uh, I would disagree with that. Again, it, it is uh, based on uh, how many of our students are ready uh, for colleges how many, and careers across the state. It is based on our 
uh, SAT scores, and um, that is their ranking. That is how they rank Idaho and how they do business, and uh, we're proud of being fifth in the nation for college and career ready. You talked before about uh, your background as a teacher, and you talked about teacher salaries. We have a teacher shortage. We've had a teacher shortage before the pandemic, and the pandemic has uh, exacerbated that. So how do you reverse that? And is it simply a matter of money? Is it a morale component? Is it a, a an economic component, a job market component? How do you reverse the trends in teacher shortages? Well, I think it's all of the above. Um, you know, we say all the time there's teacher compensation and then there's teacher satisfaction. And I think the state of Idaho, I know the state of Idaho has worked really hard on the teacher compensation piece. Um, you know, the career ladder is a huge component of that, making sure that that stays um, in place so that teachers can see those scheduled raises uh, every year and it gives them hope. And I've gotten lots of emails around that very topic. You know, thank you for Superintendent Ibarra for understanding how important the career ladder is. But then there's teacher satisfaction and making sure uh, that we are uh, supporting teachers in the work that they do, understanding that public education is a choice for parents too. And we saw during COVID, the parents were not very happy when their public schools were not open. And so that was great. Uh, but you know that was that was a shining moment, I think, for our teachers to understand uh, that you are loved and you are wanted. Uh, but uh, again, you know, I think it's the the thing that then one national teacher of the year said that plays very well into this conversation that we're having, uh, you know, about teacher satisfaction. The two things that we need in public education is time and patience uh, moving forward. And so we've worked really hard in my department uh, to make sure to lift the profession, uh, telling all those great stories across the state about how well we're doing, uh, rising from 31st to 17th in the nation for achievement, number one for offering college credits while still in high school, fifth in the nation for college and career ready. Um, so I, we have worked very hard on um, all of those programs that uh, really uh, tell teachers how much they are supported for the work that they do. COVID did uh, I think wear everybody down, but I don't think it was just education. It was a lot of different professions across the nation, whether you were a nurse, whether you were a doctor, whether you were a teacher, my husband's a police officer. Uh, I think we saw a lot of professions uh, really uh, get wore down during the pandemic, but I, teachers in Idaho have a lot to be proud of. And I'm, I am proud to be able to call them, uh, call myself their superintendent of public instruction and a teacher who has walked in their shoes. They do a great job. Let's talk about the parental involvement component that you mentioned before. I don't think anybody can argue that uh, the role of parents ha has come into the forefront these past two years. What is the role of the state superintendent in fostering parental involvement? A lot of that's going to happen at the local level. It's going to be the school level. It's going to be the PTA. What uh, does the state superintendent do in that front? That's a great question uh, because I've been going around the state talking to uh, you know parent groups and just talked to one in the Capitol uh, probably about a month ago and they asked me the exact same question. What is the role of the state superintendent in parental involvement? We certainly don't want to see our state superintendent um, you know be a, a blockade between them and their local district and they even expressed to me we 
um, love the communication between ourselves and the local district and we trust our local district we just want more information and what this specific idea that they asked me for as the state superintendent was give me common sense strategies to get more involved with my local district now i don't give me don't give me a parental rights bill that's very top down i know my rights are embedded in the system but give me common sense strategies to re-engage with my local district tell me how to do that and so one of the things that my department is working on right now is a is a parental involvement toolkit and it gives them more information around things like advanced opportunities uh, it will give them more information uh, about how to communicate uh, via facebook and and um, where can where can they go get more information uh and in whether that be Facebook, whether that be a text, whether that be an email, uh, it will just teach them how to, to get the information more quickly. Uh, we are working on, and maybe you're familiar with the tool called PERC that we used to have. Interestingly enough, uh, PERC wasn't super popular. It was a parental involvement tool before COVID. Uh, and uh, nobody really even knew it existed. And then after I met with this parent group uh, about a month ago, uh, everybody was super excited and wanted to see uh, my department breathe new life into PERC, and that is exactly what we're doing, uh, is finding a way to get more information about those college credits that kids can earn while still in high school, how they can uh, better engage with their local school district through PERC. You've been pretty outspoken the past few weeks about the need to move on to the new content standards in, in English language arts and math and science. But there's a question about how much this is all going to cost. How much will it cost to align the assessments to the new standards? But you want to move forward with it, even though there were questions about the cost. How come? Absolutely. Well, I, I, there's a real flavor right now to go this direction. Parents were not happy during the uh, pandemic with um, you know not being able to help their students. Uh, with their educational career, um, it's time to remodel. It's time to do things differently. I've been hearing that all over the state. Um, it's been about 11 years since we adopted these standards and the time has come. It was part of the new uh, review process. It wasn't something that was politically done just you know, uh, for political reasons. It was time to review English language arts and math plus uh, we were, um, you know, seeing through the pandemic that that parents were not very happy uh, with the expectations uh, of what their children were learning. And so this was a great opportunity to all come to the table and engage in what we could do to remodel uh, the work that had been done throughout the state of Idaho around the standards and really make those the Idaho way. I made the motion during a school, uh, a state board meeting uh, to get rid of the common core and adopt uh, the very work that the teachers around the state of idaho came to the table to do along with parents along with stakeholders uh, and so it was everybody involved in this process it was very transparent and it was time if we want to raise the profession and get the support from the public this is something we really needed to do and, and as a former curriculum director myself I have yet to see a perfect standard that doesn't go through uh, this review process at some point. So one, it was time to remodel. Now I'll get to the to the price point. Sure. Um, this has been two years in the making, so it was a little shocking for me to see that people were worried about the price tag. 
because all along uh, during this work, I had been talking to folks, specifically the legislature, who participated in this process of reviewing the standards, talking about the possibility of a pretty big price tag for a new test. But the difficulty in that is uh, we don't know what we want yet until the new standards are adopted. And, it, and I like to describe it for the public who might be watching like this. It's like going on to a car lot and looking at a car dealer and, and him saying what, or her saying, what is your, your price range? And you say, well, I don't know. Well, do you want four wheel drive? Do you want automatic windows? Do you want a truck? Do you want a car? Do you want an SUV? I don't know. Um, so we don't know yet is what I'm trying to, to tell the public. It could be anywhere from $10 million uh, all the way up to excess of over $40 million over a three-year period for whatever bells and whistles we decide to add to that new test. It could be we keep the test that we have and just uh, throw out a couple of questions, add a couple questions. That's going to be on the lower end or we rewrite the whole thing because that's what the state of Idaho wants and that's what the folks who are coming to the table want. And that could be upwards of, like I said, anywhere from 40 to $50 million for a rewrite. So it just depends on what we choose to do once these standards uh, are fully adopted and they are uh, about all the way through the process and I'm pretty excited. And then we can begin to really have uh, conversations around uh, what kind of tests are, are we going to be looking at here for so, either a wholesale rewrite or or just a, a small remodel? But swap out the standards first and figure out the assessment. Right. We need to do an alignment study um, to see you know what our options are going to be as soon as these new standards are adopted. But but again, I like to tell people this is over a three year period as well, so we have time. Let me ask you about critical race theory, about CRT. I mean, you get you get these questions probably every place you go on the, on the campaign trail. How extensive is this issue? How, how serious is this issue, and how much of it is uh, a politicized uh, a politicized issue? I've been out visiting schools, uh, a lot of government classes, a lot of history classes, uh, and what I'm seeing being taught is the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and exactly what I would have expected to uh, see on a school visit. Uh, some of them were surprises because someone said, well, well, maybe people are, are not showing you the real teachings when you show up. I said, no, some of the visits were surprises, and yet some of them were scheduled in advance. And I'm seeing the same thing all over the state, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. And, I, and I've heard teachers say to their students, challenge me, challenge me on anything you're hearing. Uh, talk to me about your questions. Ask me to clarify. And so kids are super engaged. And interestingly enough, they knew the students knew what I was there for. They said, Superintendent Ibarra, you're here looking for critical race theory. And I said, yeah, that's what I'm here looking for. So even the kids have heard. Uh, what some of the concerns are around critical race theory. I have talked to our local superintendents uh, about a five-point plan to address critical race theory in their district should a parent bring that concern forward. And part of that five-point plan includes having the parent point out what they believe is critical race theory, uh, having a conversation about it, having a discussion, maybe considering making a policy about it. But please just don't... Um, tell parents that they don't know what they're talking about or it's not happening because 
all that does is create more um, suspicion because critical race theory means a lot of different things to a lot of different mm -hmm. people right now. And so if someone is convinced that they are seeing critical race theory, I've encouraged superintendents to please sit down, have a conversation and have a parent point that out for you. And also feel free to say that's not critical race theory if it's not. I've encouraged them to review their curriculum uh, encourage them to have focus groups as all part of the five point plan uh, as well. One thing I wanted to ask you about, um, as I watched this campaign unfold, uh, Debbie Critchfield has several of your former staff members on is supporting her campaign. Why do you what do you make of that? Uh, at this point, I don't know. I don't make anything of it, really. I mean, everybody's entitled to uh, their opinion and to support uh, whoever they choose. Um, most of those folks left uh, for greener pastures, for higher pay, uh, for uh, an opportunity to work at home, where my department uh, is recently exploring a telecommuting policy, but uh, you know, we work with kids. We need to be out there um, hands-on, roll up your sleeves, get involved, and and support schools and students to achieve. And so uh, a lot of those folks left either for retirement or for greener pastures and uh, have a right to support whoever they want to. This is a question I probably would ask of just about any incumbent, but I think especially in the education space where, you know, you're dealing with issues that the governor is dealing with, the State Board of Education is dealing with, the stakeholders groups are dealing with. Can you give us an example of an initiative that is uniquely yours and something that you have kind of taken from cradle to to completion in these seven years? You know, you know, a signature issue that that you've worked on and worked to completion. A better culture. Definitely a better culture in my department, a better culture uh, out there uh, lifting the profession. When I showed up, one of the reasons I ran for state superintendent originally is one, I wanted to see an educator in this arena as the leader of public education in K-12. Um, because you have to be someone who has walked in their shoes, has taught a classroom full of kids to read, who knows what it's like to execute a fire drill, who's run a building like myself, and also been an, a district office administrator, someone who can connect with those folks. And so that was one reason. Another reason, I wanted to make sure my department was a service organization and not a compliance department. And that was one thing, uh, that was another reason that motivated me, motivated me originally seven years to run was, the Department of Education does have, under my um, supervision, some things that we have to be compliant about. Of course, that's federal funds. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. We have to follow the law and you have to be compliant. That's taxpayer dollars. But a lot of the work that we do is customer service oriented. And I, I wanted folks to know that I am a local control gal. I will show up and give you everything I got and help you. Uh, but my job is not to um, tell you what to do or to step on your toes. And I think that I displayed that uh, well during the pandemic. Uh, just being there by people's side in case they needed us. Uh, you know, a lot of webinars. Uh, lots of questions during the pandemic. Uh, and so just being that uh, model that I've always have of supporting schools and students to achieve. And, and the other thing, again, was raising the profession, being 
someone who is out there who used to be a teacher understanding that I know no business that can survive by banging their very people over the head and being negative. Uh, making sure that I'm telling those good stories about education, helping people uh, when they see a struggle, uh, explaining what goes on with the legislative process as soon as the legislature leaves town, getting around all over the state and saying, here's other laws and the rules that are affecting you. What can we do better on next section uh, to to help you? But, but understanding that the state superintendent knows uh, good ideas are implemented at the grassroots level. They come from the grassroots roots level, and those are the folks who can do it uh, with the support and the resources that they need. Well, Superintendent, that covered the questions I had. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. I appreciate you making the time. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Again, that was Superintendent of Public Instruction, Sherry Ibarra. Ibarra is one of three Republicans seeking the nomination for state superintendent. She is joined on the ballot by former State Board of Education President Debbie Critchfield and former legislator Brandon Durst. Now, if you go back into our podcast archives, you'll find our interview with Critchfield. I talked to her a couple of weeks ago. We've invited Durst to come on to a future podcast. He has not yet accepted. Hopefully he will. And if he does, we'll bring you that interview as soon as possible. That'll wrap it up for this week. It has been another busy week for us over at the State House. We think the legislative session is winding down. It could come to a conclusion next week, but this week was certainly a busy one. So if you've missed anything this week, go back to idahoednews.org and we'll catch you up on the latest. If you're wondering what's happening with All Day Kinder, we'll have that story for you. If you're wondering what happened with the higher education budget on the House floor, I have that story as well. If you're wondering what's happening with teacher bonuses, teacher salaries, you name it, we've got it covered. We have daily roundups from the State House. Blake Jones and I are covering the State House uh, from gavel to gavel with an emphasis on education topics. So catch up there. And speaking of elections, I have a piece that I posted on Thursday, kind of looking ahead to the legislative elections. You know, we're paying a lot of attention, obviously, to the primaries and the statewide races, but a lot of primary races at the legislative level that are going to be extremely interesting and really impactful. They're going to affect the politics of the legislature next year and the tone of the legislature next year. I give you kind of a scouting report of the races to watch. Follow us on Twitter at idahoednews.org. We tweet out the links to our latest stories and we tweet out bulletins on any breaking news items. You can follow us on Facebook and join the conversation there and check back next Friday for another edition of the podcast. I'm Kevin Richard. Stay safe and have a good week. <laughs>